0: Matthew chapter seven, beginning at verse seven Ask and it shall be given to you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. For what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf? Will he give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish? He will not give him a snake, will he? If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more should your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Be As we've been preaching through the uh, book of Matthew, and we have been preaching through this section of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount We have now come to this section in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, which is the second instance whereby Jesus is is teaching us about prayer in his sermon. As you recall in chapter 6, he was telling us how to pray not like the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, in their prayers, they like to be seen of men. And it was all about bringing glory to themselves to be seen of men of being self-righteous. Jesus says, when you pray, go in secret and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. doesn't mean that we don't have public prayers. It just means that we must have attitudes not like Pharisees who were hypocrites. So, now twice in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has referenced uh, about prayer. After all, he gave us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Right after he told us not to pray like the Pharisees, he says, We'll pray like this. And we see that he gave us a model of what should constitute uh, the essence of prayer. Not that we have to pray exactly that way, but those elements, and we preached on that several weeks ago, those elements about prayer should be there. And foremost, Uh, those elements about the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God advanced. And so the subject of prayer is important to the Lord Jesus. You know, if you were to take the typical church, it doesn't matter which church, all evangelical churches, reformed churches, the least attended meeting usually is a prayer meeting. That's the least attended prayer meeting. Oftentimes, um, the saints probably don't have a full understanding of the nature, the value of prayer, the power of prayer, and we are going to delve into uh, this whole nature of prayer, and all of us, me included, can always be exhorted to be more about this ministry. The Lord Jesus, He was the God-man, and yet He would spend vast amounts of time in prayer. And so what we see here is we need to take a look before we delve into a lot of the um, the particularities of this passage about prayer. Uh, <clears throat> we need to understand that and maybe one reason why prayer meetings are, are not as often attended, as uh, well attended as other areas. You know, when you come to preaching services, you learn from the Word of God. You go to a Bible study, you learn something about the Word of God. You go to a prayer meeting, and you're communing with God. And as you know, it's, it's work. It's work to pray. It's work to concentrate in prayer. It's easy to be distracted. I mean, we always have to. Call, I mean, I'm causing heaven to bring my mind, bring it back, bring it back, stay focused. It's not an easy thing to do. And so, what we see the thing about prayer, though, and its importance is that it is an expression of our commitment to the Lord God, it shows our total dependency upon Him. That's what prayer does. That's why we come to him. We come to him because uh, we want to commune with him, and we recognize we are dependent upon him for everything that we have. And so, it's uh, it's unfortunate that you have some people say, and you've heard this, I'm sure. And there's maybe some issue going on. Says, well, I guess if it comes down to it, the the last thing I mean we'll do is. Who may have to come and pray about it. When all else fails, pray about it. Well, it's not. It should be the last thing. Prayer should be the first thing we should engage in. And not out of some sense of uh, of not having what we need and out of desperation we go to the Lord in prayer. No, it should be a way of life to us. And <clears throat> we're going to see that the prayers of the saints have been vastly important in the scriptures. There has never been any great historical event that has not happened uh, in biblical history and in church history that wasn't some dedicated prayer behind it. Well, let's consider some importance. Just to show you just how important prayer is and its value, Uh, we're going to take a look at some historical uh, examples of this that should cause us to uh, to pray and to see its value. Uh, the first instance I want us to turn to, turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. And I want to pick up at verse 7 through verse 14. Now the context here is Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, children of Israel have been left, and he will be up there 40 days and 40 nights. And so we're picking you up at verse 7. This is while Moses is up on Mount Sinai. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone, that I, my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation." Then Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why dost thine anger burn against thy people who thou brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he broke them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel Thy servants to whom thou didst swear by thyself, and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heavens, and of this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now there's a great amount of theology in this whole passage. There are some things that are difficult to understand, the relationship between a sovereign God and human responsibility, but I don't need to settle those theological issues. We don't always have to settle whether we're talking about the sovereignty of God who who has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing catches God by surprise. He has declared the end from the beginning, the book of Isaiah says. Uh, Did he catch God by surprise? The obstinacy of those people? No, it didn't catch God uh, unawares. Are we going to take seriously when God says, I'm going to destroy We've got to take God seriously. Now Moses has been raised up by God to deliver God's people out of bondage. Moses is a type of Christ in the scriptures. Moses was a great prophet. And Moses here, it should be obvious to you and I, that it was Moses' prayer that saved the nation. If you don't appreciate that about that, you don't understand the severity of what it was. Because God says, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses begged God, entreated God. We're going to see in a moment, for 40 days and nights, he entreated God not to destroy Israel. Now, it's important there, It's, it's as if God always encourages his people to pray If you look at verse ten, it says, "Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them. Let me alone." Did Moses leave him alone? No. Moses didn't leave God alone. Moses interceded on behalf of the nation, begged God, and notice the basis upon which he is arguing with God. Some theologians have said God loves to be persuaded. By his own scripture. And so what God was saying, what Moses was praying was, Lord, don't destroy them. I mean, what are the people going to say? Did you not give a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God, you gave a promise. Don't destroy them. I beg you. Don't do it. And so what did God do? So he changed his mind. It means that God relented from what he would have done if Moses had not prayed. You know, there are some things in life whereby, as James tells us, does he not? You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. That's why you don't have it. You never ask. Moses asked God to have mercy on a people who didn't deserve to have mercy on. And God heard his prayer And save the nation. Take a look. Turn over to Deuteronomy 9. It's talking about the same instance, but it gives a little bit further detail. Deuteronomy 9, look at verses 18 through 20, and then verse 25. Now, Moses is recounting that event when he was on Mount Sinai. He says in verse 18, I fell down before the Lord as at the first Forty days and nights I neither ate bread nor drank water because of your sin which you committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also, and the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him." So I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. And then verse 25. So I fell down before the Lord for forty days and nights, which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Now you think about that. Moses was so concerned, he fasted that amount of time. And every day he begged God Don't destroy them. Please, God, don't destroy them. Don't do it. Please. Save them. I know they're they're a wicked people. You don't have to tell me that. It's like when Aaron... God was ready to destroy Aaron. Remember, Aaron's down there and the people said, "Uh, Moses is not coming back. We need to have a God. So he took all their gold from them and he cast it in the fire. And you remember Aaron's excuse? He says, well... uh, Moses, um, I threw the gold in there, and it just leaped out. This golden calf just leaped out, and and Moses has to tell Aaron, look, Aaron, God was so angry with you, He was ready to kill you, and if it wasn't for my prayer, you'd be dead. I prayed for you, Aaron. Moses is a great type of Christ, but mind you, he did not leave God alone. There is power in intercessory prayer, and Moses is a great example of that. And that's why you and I ought to learn from that example. But then there's another great story that we learn about the importance of prayer. Turn over to 1 Kings, chapter 18. This is the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. We see here in this story, it says, let's start at verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. I won't read the whole text there, but you're probably familiar with the story. He issues a challenge. And he says, we're going to have a sacrifice, and uh, whatever, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray to my God for God to come and consume the sacrifice. You're going to pray to your God, Baal, all you prophets, you pray to your God. And whoever's God comes and, and, and comes in fire and consumes the sacrifice, that's the real God. But he says, I'm tired of you, Israel, uh, vacillating between you following Jehovah or worshiping the bells. You've got to decide. Now, then I need to tell you now, it, it was Elijah a pluralist. <laughs> I don't think he had bumper stickers that says coexist on the back of his chariot. <clears throat> And you know that bumper sticker that's, that coexists with all the other religions. No, he says, look, we're going to find out who's God's God. And so, all the, uh, you know the story how the prophets, uh, they keep praying and they're praying and nothing happens. And he begins to mock them, it says. It says, perhaps he's gone off. Uh, he's occupied, meaning he had to take a break. Or maybe he's sound asleep. You need to wake him up. And so they shouted. You know, what's interesting, they followed his suggestion. They shouted. And then it says, according to their custom, they begin to cut themselves. Maybe that will get Baal's attention. Well, he didn't get Baal's attention. And then, of course, he tells them, okay, I'm going to up the stakes. I'm going to to wet my sacrifice. I didn't ask you to do that. But I'm going to wet mine, fill it up with water, and here comes the fire. And so... Here we have his uh, Elijah praying to the true God. I think I mentioned that to you one time before when we were in Atlanta. It was National Prayer Week, and uh, you could call in for prayer requests because uh, it was the National Day of Prayer the next day. So all these people were calling in. I decided we were, I'd just come back from a prayer meeting at Chalcedon, um, from the prayer meeting, I said, What a better time to call in prayer. And so I called in and I gave a prayer and I figured I'd be on the radio. I wasn't on the radio, got home, and uh, I called in. So maybe I didn't make myself clear and they gave the request again. And nobody, uh, they, didn't, they didn't feature me. And it, the name of the lady hosting the show was by the name of Rosky. That was her name. The radio show was Rosky's radio program. Everybody, she didn't mention mine. I called in a third time and I said, "Rosky, you ain't going to hear what I said. You? He says, nope. I said, why? He says, you're a your prayer. Because I said, here's what my comment was. It's a wonderful thing to have the National Day of Prayer, but it's important whose God you're praying to. Just praying to God, uh, any God of your choice is not going to cut it. You have to pray to the true and living God that really does exist. She found that offensive. She was not going to air it. And I said, well, okay, let me just tell you something. I think I represent thousands and thousands of people in Atlanta. And uh, I must have debated with her a half hour off the air about the necessity of praying to the true God and not an eclectic God like to the bells. And that's what Elijah did. You see, when we pray, America is in great need. It's in great throngs of uh, desperate need. And the God of your choice is not going to help you. It's not going to help America. The only one that can help America is the true and the living God, and we better repent. And we're a people that are vacillating between two opinions. We have the pluralists today because that is the modus operandi today, to be a pluralist. That's the way we are today. And that's why we're receiving a lot of the criticism, and that's why we're experiencing a lot of the trouble, is because uh, Christians historically have refused to be pluralists, rightly so, because, no, there's only one way of salvation, and that's through Jesus. It's not through Muhammad. It's not through Buddha. It's not through any other way, but through Jesus, and we will insist on that. And so... Who you pray to is very important. we we'll turn to 2 Kings 19. Another story of the value of prayer. We alluded to it in the last week or the week before about Hezekiah. The Assyrians were <clears throat> threatening Jerusalem. They had conquered all the other uh, nations. And they sent this insulting letter to Hezekiah. Hezekiah takes this letter, spreads it out before the Lord, starting in verse 14, down through verse 20. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, Thou art the God, Thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, Thou hast made heaven and earth. "...Incline thy ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. And now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, O Lord, art God. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, said to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. You know, the greatness about Hezekiah's prayer is he wanted God's name vindicated. you think Hezekiah wanted to die? He didn't want to die, but he wanted Jehovah's name vindicated. He wanted all the world to know there's only one God, Jehovah. And all the other gods are no gods at all. And the Assyrians have destroyed pagan gods who are no gods. That's why they've been destroyed. But you're not dealing with pagan gods, Hezekiah says. You're dealing, Assyrians, with the real God. And the real God heard Hezekiah And we're told that the Lord said, this is my fight. And he went out and destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers that night. God, I'm mentioning all of these instances to you, brethren, that God hears intercessory prayers of those who go before him and beg him for his namesake, for his glory, to do great things. He hears those prayers. We have have all these instances. Now, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, why are all these stories in the the Old Testament? It says, for our sake, they are there. For our sake, that we may learn from them. And so we ought to learn from the great prayers of these, these mighty men and how they prayed and the fact they prayed and persevered in prayer. We may not live in an age of miracles like those, but we do serve the same God, do we not? And is not Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever? And we may not live in an age where the manifestation of God's power is exactly the same, but God's power is still available to us. And that's what Jesus said. So let's turn to Matthew 7. Look a little bit closer at verses 7 through 11. And what Jesus, how he's encouraging us then to pray. He says, he's got three things. He gives three commands. Exhorts us with three commands. He says, ask, seek, and knock. Now what's important here is... Is the grammar of the text. Verse 7, in that grammar, those uh, verb forms, and that's what they are. They're participles or verb forms or verbal adjectives, whatever you want to call it. But you say, well, it doesn't matter. Well, I'll tell you what does matter is that it's a command and that it's in the present tense. Now, the present tense is what does matter. Because here's what he says, I command you to keep on asking. I command you to keep on seeking, and I command you to keep on knocking. And if you keep asking, and if you keep seeking, and if you keep knocking, what's the promise? That's the condition, the promise in verse 8. For everyone who asks, now that's a present tense as well. So everyone who continually asks, continually receives. That's the grammar. And he who continually seeks continually finds, and him who continually knocks, it will continually be open to him. Now that's about as great a promise as you and I will ever receive, is it not? The exhortation to persevere in prayer. Keep on, keep on. He says uh, keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Remember James says, alluded to it earlier. James four two says, "You have not because you ask not." But everybody who keeps on asking keeps on receiving. So why aren't we asking more? See, it is an amazing thing. And if there's anyone who doesn't want, who do you think doesn't want us to pray? The great adversary, right? He'll do everything he can to not get us to pray, because I'll tell you one thing, He's not a, Satan is not a dummy. Satan understands he's been around all these thousands of years. He's seen all these things. He knows the power of prayer. He understands. If he not keep us from praying, he'll do that, because he knows when the saints pray, things happen because their God listens to the prayers of the saints. May I suggest to you, and I, I'm, I'm going I'm to lead the way in confessing here. Maybe the reason why we're still the size we are numerically. I know we have prayed. We pray almost every Wednesday for the Lord to build a church here, don't we not? Can we not pray more? Pray more? Pray more frequently? Pray more earnestly? I can't say I've fasted like Moses for 40 days and 40 nights to deliver a nation. I haven't done that. And begged God to do what he's promised to do in time. You know, the great Southern Presbyterian theologian, James Henry Thornwell, said there's one thing that retards the chariot of the Redeemer. He says it's the slothfulness of the church is retarding the chariot of the Redeemer. Our slothfulness in prayer, our slothfulness in the proclamation of the gospel. And so what we see here, we have this encouragement from our Lord to keep on asking and seeking and knocking. And so what Jesus is commanding us to do is to persevere in prayer. That's what he's asking us to do. And then he tells us that we can have a confidence. Now, why can we have a confidence? Well, we just got back from the family conference, and it was about the Lord Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And one of the things that is brought out about Jesus as our great high priest is that when he died on the cross, the uh, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom. And remember, only the high priest could go in once a year to atone for his own sin and for the sins of the people. Only once a year could anyone go in there, and it was fear and trembling. So when that veil was torn... Then what that says in the book of Hebrews says, free access has been given to the people of God. Therefore, confidently go with boldness to the throne of grace. Enter the Holy of Holies in heaven. And Jesus is there with his sacrifice interceding for us. So there's no reason why you and I in the New Testament era ought not to be regularly assailing the throne of grace with confidence. And if we keep on asking and seeking and knocking, He's going to do something. This is the promise of Jesus. We have uh, a great story uh, of the persistence. Turn over to, to Luke 18, beginning at verse one. Now He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying, there was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city. She kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? The whole parable was designed... Jesus says to teach us to pray and not lose heart. To be like this woman. Remember, this was an unjust judge. who didn't care about God. He didn't care about people. But what he did care about was his comfort. And he didn't like this woman keep coming and bothering him. And he was, she was just like a fool in the side. And finally, he says, all right, just to get rid of you, I'll give you whatever you want. Now, this is an unjust judge. Now, that's the story of the parable. So what Jesus says, if an unjust judge will give something to somebody because of their persistence, what do you think a just judge, the living God, will do to his saints who keep coming to him? Will he not give them what they ask for? Remember, Jesus said in our passage in Matthew 7, our Heavenly Father wants to give good gifts to his children. It says, what father will give a snake to a to a child uh, who wants some bread. No, that's ridiculous. Our Heavenly Father seeks to give good things to those who ask. What is He, what is he saying? Keep on coming. Keep on asking. Keep seeking Me. Keep knocking. There's a great passage about those um, prophets in Isaiah it says these watchmen who are watching the Lord, watching on the walls of Jerusalem, and it says they will give God no rest until He makes Israel a praise to the nations. Now you think about that. They will give God no rest until God makes Israel a praise in the nations. That's what our text here in Luke 18 says. That's what our passage in Matthew 7 is teaching us. Ask and you'll keep on Keep on asking. You'll keep on receiving. Seeking and knocking, you'll keep on receiving. Now, think about it is, what should dominate our prayer requests? Now, we're talking about this great prayer promises that we have. What should we be praying for? Well, you know, there's a great passage in Psalm 37. Take a look at that. Uh, Psalm 37, 4 and 5. Now there's a condition and there's a promise. But notice the condition. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. The promise. The promise. We always like to concentrate on the promise, don't we? Give us the desires of our heart. But what's the condition? Delight yourself in the Lord. I delight in the Lord. So if I'm delighting in the Lord, what is my concern is the things of the Lord, right? The things that Jesus wants. That is what I take delight in. Therefore, that's what I'm going to pray. And therefore, those are the great promises are given to those who simply are praying back the promises of God to the Lord himself. What should we desire? I'm going to jump ahead to Matthew 9. Turn to Matthew 9. Look at verses 35 through 38. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into the harvest. What's the great need of the hour? Pray church. That's the great need of the hour. The harvest is ready to be picked. There are people who are distressed or downtrodden. Jesus was, felt compassion for these people who needed direction. So what did they need? They needed a word from God. And He says, Here's what you ought to pray for. That God will raise up preachers to go out and preach the gospel to these people. They're in such desperate need. That's the need of the hour. So that's what my concern should be. That's what your concern should be. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Look at verses 30 and 31. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I might be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for the Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Now that word there, strive together, the Greek word there is soon agonizamai. It's a combination of a preposition and what English word is closely resembling agonize? Agonize. That's exactly right. It's an athletic term. What Paul was doing, he says. Anybody, any of these athletes that have ever engaged in these contests? He says it required the straining with such effort. It was agonizing effort. So here's what he says. I want you to agonize with me in prayer to God for me. For years, I I read over this passage and didn't understand that until I was doing more of a study on prayer and broke the word down. I said, I can't believe I missed that for all that period of time. If there was ever an encouragement for intercessory prayer for mission activity, Here it is. You can talk to any missionary you want. Yeah, missionaries are always in need of money. But I will tell you this from their own mouth, and they mean it. We would rather have a group of prayer warriors than than financial contributions. Because we know that God will bring in the financial contributions in time. We just need to have some prayer warriors. Some prayer warriors. I'll never forget when uh, when I was sitting there a seminary student, I was working uh, hard uh in the summer painting in 100 degrees weather. And then there was a certain young girl that I was infatuated with sitting over there. And uh, I decided I'd go see her later in the evening. Well, I went over and painted for the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in the evening. I'd already painted six hours, 100 degree work, went over and painted for the preacher. And then I decided to go see her. After that, I tell you what, I was wearing me out. And uh, the thing about it was, the Presbyterian pastor, Don Patterson, her uh, the the wife, his wife's father, uh, was living with him. He was up in age. Uh, her mother had died, so he was living with them. And within a short period of time, he'll die. And I remember she told me she was going through her father's uh, belongings, and she found a prayer journal that she did not know existed from her father, who for a period of like 40, 50 years kept a journal of prayer requests and then would write down when God would answer the prayer. She didn't even know her father was this kind of prayer warrior. He was a prayer warrior. If there's anything, it reminded me there that uh, sometimes when people get up in age and, and <clears throat> they can't do what they did, let's engage them in prayer activity. I mean, sometimes it's not, well, at least we can get them to pray. No, that's the kind of people I want praying. And so we see here, Paul says, I want you to agonize with me in prayer to God for me. Look at what he says, now with reference to him as the preacher, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and look at verses 17 through 20. This is the, the context, is the, uh, the armor of the Christian. It says in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, Be on the alert with perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming you I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now remember Jesus did he not say in Matthew 9 he says what's the great need of the hour pray to the Lord of the harvest to pray that he raise up those to go into the fields and to preach the gospel. So Paul is saying here, I want you to pray for me that I may be bold as I need to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. This is why we need to sustain all those in Christian ministry with fervent prayer all the time that they may be bold as they ought to be. That's the great need. Now, let me give you some historical examples now in church history of how this has been flushed out. And it's thrilling. Ever heard of the name Samuel Rutherford? He was a great Puritan of the 17th century. He was one of the delegates to the Westminster Assembly. Uh, Samuel Rutherford uh, was probably best known for a work he did called Lex Rex. Charles I believed in the divine right of kings. He believed that the king was above the law. Rutherford wrote a, a book called Lex Rex. Lex is the, the Latin word for law. Rex is the Latin word for king. Charles was saying, Rex, Lex, the king is law. Rutherford made, came up with this massive treatise called Lex Rex. The law is king. And Charles... You are under the law of God. Well, Charles did not like that. So they had their run-ins. And uh, and even after uh, Cromwell dispenses with Charles I, and after the Cromwellian uh, rule for a few years, sadly... Charles's son, Charles II, will come to the throne, and he will be as even more vicious than his father was. And he will have the killing times, what they call the killing times in Scotland, where if you were a Presbyterian, it costed your life. It would cost you your life unless you would renounce being a Presbyterian. Scotland was primarily primarily Presbyterian. And it's estimated over 100,000 people, Christians in Scotland, were murdered under Charles II. Charles, he um, he wanted to get at Rutherford. They imprisoned Rutherford. And uh, he was going to bring Rutherford to trial. And Rutherford says, well, I'm being called to a higher tribunal. I'm on my deathbed, Charles. I cannot come. <laughs> I want to read to you what Rutherford said on his deathbed. It says, now I'm quoting from Ian Murray in his work on the, the Puritan hope. He says, though Rutherford lived to see Christ's covenanted cause in Scotland reduced to near ruin under the restoration of Charles II, though himself he could say, There is now nothing betwixt me and the resurrection but paradise. He had not lost sight of promises respecting the church on earth. We cannot but say it is a sad time to this land at present. This is Rutherford speaking. It is a day of darkness, rebuke, and blasphemy. The royal prerogative of Christ is pulled from his head. Yet we are to believe Christ will not so depart from the land, but a remnant shall be saved. And he shall reign a victorious conquering king to the ends of the earth. All that there were nations, kindreds, and tongues, and all the people of Christ's habitable world, encompassing his throne with cries and tears for the spirit of supplication to be poured down upon the inhabitants of Judah for that effect. That was his prayer on his deathbed. Rutherford would die. Did God forget his prayers? No. No. Ian Murray talks about two other Scottish martyrs, preachers, by the name of Walter Smith and Donald Cargill, who both were hanged on July 27, 1681. Earlier, Walter Smith had been engaged in forming prayer societies all through Scotland. Here's what Walter Smith said about the importance of those prayer societies. He says, as it is the undoubted duty of all to pray for the coming of Christ's kingdom, so that all our love of our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, and know what is it to bow a knee in good earnest, will long and pray for the outmaking of the gospel promises to his church in the latter days, that King Jesus would go out upon the white horse of the gospel, conquering and to conquer, and to make conquest of the travail of his soul, that it may be sounded that the kingdoms of this world are become his. And his name called upon from the rising of the sun to its going down, that the often cast in Israel for unbelief would never be forgotten, especially in these meetings, that the promised day of their engrafting again may be hastened, that the Lord's written and preached word with power to enlighten the poor pagan world Living in black, perishing darkness without Christ and the knowledge of his name. That's what they prayed for. That's what he prayed for. That's what he, he formed these prayer societies. There was a great Puritan by the name of Thomas Goodwin who was uh, one of Oliver Cromwell's chaplains. I mean, Oliver Cromwell had the best chaplains I can ever think. He had Thomas Goodwin and he had the great John Owen, both his chaplains. And Thomas Goodwin said this about prayer. There may be some prayers, now listen carefully to this, because it really applies to us in our day as well. There may be some prayers which you must be content never yourselves to see answered in this world. The accomplishment of them not falling in your time, such as those you happily make for the calling of the Jews, the utter downfall of God's enemies, the flourishing of the gospel, all which prayers are not yet lost, but will have answers, for as God is an eternal God, and Christ's righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and therefore of eternal efficacy, Daniel nine twenty four. so are the prayers which are the work of the eternal Spirit of Christ, made to that God in His name have been eternally accepted, Therefore, may take place in after ages. You see what he's saying is, you and I are going to be praying about things we will never see in our lifetime. But does that mean it's not going to happen? No. It means that God heard all those prayers and has gathered them up. Goodwin made this important comment about prayer. He says, there's a common treasure of the church. Not of their merits, but of their prayers. There are bottles of tears of filling, vials of filling to be poured out for the destruction of God's enemies. What a collection of prayers there has been many ages towards it. And there may be one reason why God will do such great things to the end of the world. Even because there has been a great stock of prayers going for so many ages, which is now to be returned. He's filling them up. Revelation talks about the prayers of the saints as those great sacrifices coming before the throne of God. I've got to reiterate this great theological truth. That just because you and I don't see the impact of our prayers in our lifetime, doesn't mean that God has forgotten about it. There have been many mothers prayed for a long lost son and will die, and yet believing that somehow God would work. And after her death, God saved the boy. It's happened multiple times. Jesus said in Mark 11, 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. It will be yours. And God says, I may not bring it right now, but 20 years from now I'll bring it. Or you may die, but I never forgot your prayer. I never forgot it. It may live on with your children. It'll come to pass. You know, this was true. of The great commentator Matthew Henry. We all. Matthew Henry is one of the best commentaries you can buy. He was thoroughly Calvinistic. Matthew Henry preached a sermon on January first, seventeen o seven, and here's what Matthew Henry was praying. He says, the year of the revival of primitive Christianity and the power of it will be the year of the redeemed. This we wish, we hope, we long to see, both at home and abroad. When the bounds of the church will be so enlarged by the conversion of pagan and Muslim nations to the faith of Christ and the spreading of the gospel in foreign parts, pray for the outpouring of the Spirit. From on high, and then the year of the redeemed will come soon. But if the year of the redeemed should not come in our days, if the carcasses of this generation should fall in the wilderness, as justly made for our unbelief and our murmuring, and we should not go over Jordan to see the goodly mountain in Lebanon, let it suffice us that those who shall call upon us shall later days shall enter that rest. Joseph dies in Egypt but his bones and confidence that God will surely visit Israel. So in those prayers and that confidence of Matthew, Henry, in prayer for God's gospel to go forth and deliver the nations, save the Muslims even. You know, we have the advantage today of having historical retrospect. We get to see, as Paul Harvey said, the rest of the story, because when Matthew Henry prayed this, Matthew Henry he prays for this great promise out of Isaiah, believing the promise of Isaiah that the gospel would pervade on planet Earth. Matthew Henry would die in 1714, but guess who was born in the same year, the greatest evangelist such Paul, George Whitfield. Born in the same year that Matthew Henry will go to glory. And guess what? One book that George Whitfield, along with his Greek New Testament, he says he carried this with him with his Greek Testament and every day consulted it Matthew Henry's commentary. George Whitfield, I believe, was a direct answer to Matthew Henry's and other people's prayers. Because there hadn't been a preacher like you. You know, in that holy club in Oxford that consisted of Whitfield, John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley, they were all self-righteous men, all trying to work their way to heaven by their own testimony. And one by one, God saves them, all of them, saves George first, and then he saves Charles. Wesley, and when uh, we uh, <clears throat> we sing one uh, a great hymn called "And Can It Be That I should Gain," when God saved Charles Wesley, he wrote the verses to that hymn on his conversion. Charles will go running over to his brother John, saying, "John, I found grace at last, John." And we're all working towards it. And it'll be a week later that God will come and save in saving grace to John Wesley. And now the Holy Club will really be a true Holy Club. <clears throat> with them all finally saved by God's grace. And this is before Whitfield's open air preaching. Let me tell you what Whitfield writes. Just prior to the going out into the fields to preach. He says, he wrote about the activities of the Holy Club. And he says, everything else was carried on with great love, meekness, and devotion. We continued in fasting and prayer to three o'clock and then parted with full conviction that God was going to do great things among us. Oh, that he would make us vessels pure and holy and meet for our master's use. And then, in an age just like ours, now we, we think things are bad. Let me tell you, just read some of the accounts of life in London, uh, life in the church, and it looks just like it is in 2013. It was pretty bad. But these men fasted and prayed, and they believed that God was going to do something great. And he went out. And God did something great. So that when <clears throat> all those 30 years of Whitfield's preaching in England and America, and when he he said that when he died, he wanted, uh, there was a great falling out to a degree between uh, Whitfield and John Wesley over the doctrine of predestination. And uh, John Wesley was very much against it. Uh, George Whitfield, their, their writings, and their correspondence is still with us, and he says it's too bad, but he says, you know, <laughs> we can still preach that gospel. And uh, Whitfield, uh, there will be a certain mending of, uh, if we may say, uh, problems there between Whitfield and Wesley, and mainly at the uh, the work of Whitfield doing it. And he said, if I ever die in America, I want John Wesley. To preach my sermon in London. And Whitfield in 1770 will die in Massachusetts. And sure enough, John Wesley will give the memorial service for, John, uh, for George Whitfield. And he'll briefly say this. He says, have we not seen? He says, have we ever heard of so many myriads of people being brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light? than through the preaching of this man. He says, Nay, I think there has been nothing like this since the days of the apostles. That was the gist of Wesley's sermon upon the death of Whitfield. Brethren, if we want to see God work in our time, we're going to have to pray more. I'm preaching to myself now, as much as to all of you. We're going to have to be more earnest in prayer. And we're going to have to beg God to do something great. And He's going to do something great, but I'll tell you this. Just like all that's gone before us, God will will hear every one of those prayers. And just like He heard all those prayers of of a Matthew Henry, and he'll die, but then God heard the prayers and He'll raise up one of the greatest preachers of all times, as a result of that prayer. we got to pray as well. We live in dark times, but our God is greater than anything in this world. And at any time, He could breathe upon this land. And He could open the eyes. Because remember, that is the way it was when God told Ezekiel, He says, Go to the valley of dry bones and then he tells Ezekiel, Prophesy to the bones, Ezekiel. Prophesy to them. In other words, preach to the bones, the dead bones, Ezekiel. Where well, the dead bones don't live. Preach to the bones, Ezekiel. So as he preached, the bones rattled. And they came together. And a mighty army, the sinew came on the flesh. And a mighty army stood there. And it was because he preached to the dead bones. yeah. Things are bad. But our God is a great God. And Jesus is reigning from the right hand of the Father. And the promises of the Father to the Son, I will give you, Son, the nations. They will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. Psalm 110. Are we going to pray for God, for Jesus to come in business with great power? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's commit ourselves to earnest prayer, to see God do something great in our time. And even that, he'll take our prayers, I assure you. Let's don't be found wanting in prayer. If you keep asking, and you keep seeking, and you keep knocking, Jesus said, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Let's pray.